Welcome back, my friends, to episode 17 of the Music Relish Podcast. My name is Mark, and tonight we have another random relish episode. Hey, Perry. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Doing great. How was your day? Enjoying the warm weather? Absolutely. Springtime is coming, and I cannot wait. Yeah, agreed. So what kind of subjects are we going to tackle tonight? Well, I'm telling you, uh, you kind of reminded me in a conversation the other day that um, albums from 1972 turned 50 this year. And I took a look at what was released, and I found some of my favorite yeah, albums. Like blah, 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 blah. Hi, Lou. Hey, Lou. <laughs> Whatever. Hi, Lou. <laughs> Mark, Mark wants to talk about some, uh, some records that have turned 50 years old. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> Perry, as we discussed before, we <laughs> this is really, really getting me down here. <laughs> anyway, I missed the introduction, the whole thing, you know. So, tell me, Mark. Mark, Mark, you want to, you want to explain to Lou what's happening tonight? Hey, Lou, while we're talking about albums from 1972, we're waiting for you to get on. You're here, and we're happy you're here. All right. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. General apathy. Let's go. Come on. It's some music (laughs) wank podcast. Come on, man. Hey, Lou, don't let it get you down, as Neil Young would say. Come on. Come on. (laughs) Don't let the bastards get you down. I'll, I'll put on my happy hat. (laughs) <laughs> shits and grins my friend shits and grins so anyway yes yeah, so 1972 um okay you okay there i'm good okay good good <laughs> so perry you got any albums from 72 that you like absolutely and it's deep purple machine head yes it was i think they recorded it may they may have recorded it in 71 but it got released in 72 yes. and this was one of these things. I remember I was 12 years old and I got a cassette player for my birthday and I had the cassette of Deep Purple Machine Head. It was a cassette and it was, I could not stop playing that thing. Highway Star, it, all of those songs, it, every, it was just perfect. Everything was fabulous on that record to me. And well, you go on. Go ahead. You go on about it because I know you're a big Richie Blackmore fan. Yeah. Well, wait, wait, um, Mark, you Mark, know. don't you, Mark, don't you pray to the altar of Richie Blackmore? <laughs> I bought my Stratocaster to look like his. I, I, um, yeah, yeah. I, I even tried to do the stage lunges he did, and I broke a couple guitars. But you know, <laughs> uh, love the guy. So, love but the guy. Did your Stratocaster have a scalloped neck? No, I don't like scalloped necks. Can't play them, and I just, they're bad for your fingers. So, Dave <laughs> Melmstein. Yeah, he's a scal- He plays scallopini. Scallopini, yes. Like veal. Al <laughs> <laughs> Demiola should have him over for dinner. <laughs> but to me, uh, Deep Purple Machine Head was one of those records. Wow, it's 50 years old. Great, great album. It, it's you're right, Perry. It's it's like every song on the album. My favorite always always was Pictures from Home. Uh, that was one of the first when I was young. That was like one of the first kind of complicated little riffs that I learned, and I was like, wow, yeah. you know. 
Great album. Great album. Me, and one of those records, and of course I had the cassette, so it was different, but every you could just listen to it straight through. Every song was great. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. And when you get older and you get more musically knowledgeable and you're playing with musicians, the one thing I never realized listening back was how fucking good Ian Pace was on that yeah. album. His drumming. Probably my favorite Ian Pace uh, drumming on, on any deeper album. Oh. Oh, unbelievable. He's, also, he's proof that you can play heavy music, but not actually have to be heavy, heavy as a, a hitter. He's, you know, he's a, he's a jazzy player. He's got, he's all wrist. Yeah, he's very, Great very point. wrist. Player. And Lou, didn't, didn't he play a four-piece kit? Uh, he, well, maybe he might have had two floor. But um, Highway Star, my favorite Deep Purple song. That, that's it's, one of my faves as well. It's it's hard not to drive eighty miles an hour when, when you're in your car when that song's on the radio. And that's the, that's what the song was written for. Is um is my woman from Tokyo on that or no? No, that no. was on. No, that was on. Who do we think we are? The follow up okay. album. Say, listen. I heard it uh, actually yesterday. Um, speaking about Ian Pace, his hi hat work alone on that break part. So far away. Oh, that's a great fantastic. break. That's a great just a melody. Yeah. 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 In, in fact, I also had Who Do We Think We Are on cassette as well. And I love that record as well. My Woman from Tokyo is one of my favorite Deep Purple songs. It's a great pop song. Yeah. 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 So who's got another 50-year-old album they want to throw in there? I got one. This one's got, this band's come up lately. A lot. It's Blue Oyster Cult's eponymous record, uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, January in 1972, and wow, it only re it only reached 172 on the Billboard charts, which is you know, think about it, that's kind of low. But in those days, that didn't mean you didn't get another record. You know, that meant you know bands were nurtured. You know, you, first record came out, you do another record. You know, they're gonna have to pay for it eventually anyway. Um, yeah. But it, it one to 172, but you know, critics liked it. Um, it's it's very diverse. They're just a great musical band. Perry, we were talking about them the other night, and I sent you a couple of Albert Bouchard videos. You sent uh, me a couple of links. Yeah. Yeah. Glorious cult. Yep. Yeah. And just a great band. And we were talking about the fact that, you know, they wrote mostly music. Uh, they used a um, rock paper to their Sandy probably one of the producers. Uh, he might have been their manager as well. He wrote lyrics. Uh, Jim Carroll. Uh, if Patti Smith writes lyrics for your band, you got to be cool, right? Heck yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, it, and it's one of my favorite records. And that's one of the few bands I think I bought every record they ever made. Um, up in, Actually, up until 1981. Because um, when you fire your drummer, your original drummer, your band sucks after. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they soldiered on. And their last record that came out, I have not heard it yet. Um, I will, though. But apparently, it's for them, considering how long they've been around, and there's two guys left, uh, it's almost a return to form for BOC, which is, which is good. But that's, it's a, I think it's a great debut album, and it's also it's 50 years old. Uh, in, it turned 50 in January. All right. Yeah. Mark, have you got a 50-year-old record you want to throw in? Yeah, I sure do. But, Lou, I, I, I'm going to agree with you. You know, Lou, I've been kind of a newbie to BOC. And so with Never Spotify, I mean, I mean, I've been able to listen to all. I like that debut like it's for me it's one of my favorites i love the sublime production it's very yeah. the drum sound is very peculiar 
and the songs yeah. are just really good. I love that album. That I, I like it better than the follow up, but again, I gotta listen more to BOC and get in the BOC world. Then I'll you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean I nineteen eighty one. And you know, you might like stuff after that. Yeah, I think you like it. I love the Imaginos record. That's a good album. And Cultosaurus Erectus is a great album. Absolutely. Can, um, can I throw there. one other thing in there, guys? What? Can I throw one thing in here? Yeah. Sure. Uh, as I was talking about Deep Purple Machine Head, right? It was on Purple Records. They had their own record label. Purple Records. Didn't know that. Thought yeah. it was Warner Brothers. They started, uh, the, I think his manager and... Um, their manager and someone else started Purple Records, and it was they they released their so, their albums on their own record label, Purple Records. Now that's pretty cool for 1972. That is, yeah. yeah. Who were they released by? I mean, there wasn't that. That's the record they label. They had a distribution like, deal with probably Virgin or someone like that, or the Warner Brothers yeah. in the U.S. It's a bigger company, but they did have their own. They did have their own company, Purple Records. Okay. Okay. Who is like a copy of that album on Purple Records? Who is your favorite Deep Purple singer? Without a doubt, Ian Gillen. Absolutely. <laughs> Mark. Me too. Me too. Dundee. Uh, uh, what's that guy from Def Leppard? Wasn't he in Deep Purple? Oh no, no. Joe, <laughs> Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> Joe Bonamassa was in Deep Purple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But, I, but to me, I heard he had 400 amplifiers on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> I'm learning, Lou. <laughs> Let it go. Um, so, Mark, if you got a 50 year old record, yeah, you, you know what, Harry? Uh, relish. I'll tell you what, I've got some of I just realized like some of my defining albums of my musical life came out, but. It's going to sound like I'm piggybacking on you, but I'm not because mm. the same year they released Made in Japan. And that was the first Deep Purple album that I heard. Now, I had been a progressive music fan up to that point. And so I was used to listening to keyboards and everything. My sister's husband had a vinyl copy of Made in Japan. He said, You should listen to this. And when you hear the live version of Highway Star, I, you know, he's got the, uh, the screaming was just like I had never heard anything like that before. Just and that album blew me away. Made in Japan's "Why I Got a Guitar." That's exactly why his he Blackmore dances between early heavy metal to some of the greatest blues riffs, blues bends, his bending, his vibrato. That album is a tour de force of of everything you know he can do. So that album that that came out that year that still play it as well. What's that? That came out in 1972 as well. Yep. Yeah. Now I got to tell you, you and I listened to music. Uh, we listened to uh, Milk Crates and Turntables, right? Mm -hmm. Podcast with Scott and Jack, and uh, they're the ones who let me know that that you know, Deep Purple made in Japan was live, no touch-ups in the studio. What you heard was the way it was done, and that was it. That's amazing. Yeah. Because. Uh, Richie Blackmore, this is before the days of of whammy bars that kept the guitar in tune. You know, if you did a dive, if you did some kind of dive with your whammy bar, you could go out of tune. He was doing everything just so good. Um, Ian Pace, of course, always perfect. 
And it was Ian Gillen, the height of his voice, his vocal powers. I mean, his, his vocal powers started to slide, you know, in later years. But he was screaming. He was Little Richard incarnate. He was amazing. Uh, Mark, yeah. um, did uh, producing different albums, or was that just Rainbow? Um, I believe... No, you know what? You got me. You're stumping me. I'm not sure. I know he became a much more active producer after he left uh, Deep Purple. Okay. Yeah. So I've yeah I I love I love Deep Purple Made in Japan also, but I've got another one that I don't know if it's just a song or if it's the record, but Alice Cooper School's Out came in 1972. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was just, and uh, I, I assume it was Bob Ezrin behind the board. Lou, would you agree with that? Probably, but I'm not sure. But of all the one, records, I don't know the chart positions. A lot of the ones I looked at and I put on my list weren't super uh, high charters. This one was number two on. So that's a smashed record. Alice Cooper schools out. Now, now, was that the name of the album, Schools Out, or was it just yeah. a single? I'm not sure. No, that was the album. And check it out. I just realized Louie and I heard that on the radio. Uh, today <laughs> um they didn't mention it you know it's serious they don't have you know the dj to mention it but um coincidentally i heard that today as we're driving home yeah. really yeah no small irony there huh no 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 this is it guys <laughs> has uh yeah have you guys got anything else you want to throw in here for yeah. i got one yeah you um, got lou yeah, let's see. Well, you know, there's a there's a whole mess. Let's think of something good here. Allman Brothers eat a peach. Yeah, seventy two. Yes. Really? Yes, it was. Yeah. What's on the record? Um, Melissa, uh, I ain't wasting time tomorrow. Amongst other. Um, that was a record that that's reminds me of moving from South Jersey to North Jersey. My brother had it, and I would just look at the album art. I don't know who that album cover. That's Phil Hartman, maybe. I don't know. Uh, it could be. He was he was quite a designer of album covers. Yeah, yeah. Because around that time, if that's seventy two, I was, I was young, um, but I remember it reminded me of James and the Giant Peach, uh, the cover of that. So I, I made the association as a, as a boy. But then I heard the music, and they're second. And I gotta say, uh, two drummers. They really knew how to use two drummers. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. And they they were the first. They kind of created that thing, didn't they? Not. I don't know. I mean, that's sure that's been around somewhere. But them and you know, the Dead did it as well too. Getting back to the Dead, um, you know, they used right. well a thirty-eight special. I don't know why they were two drummers <laughs> playing the same friggin' beat. You know what I mean? I mean? Seriously, the Southern pop. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, uh, the Outlaws did it too. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, you know, something. I'm not a big fan of the Outlaws' production sound. Never Maybe. liked. Neither am I, but but Maybe I guess it, was, it might have been that southern rock thing, you know, where you had to have you had to have the triple guitar threat, and maybe you had to have the two drummers, you know, the double drummer, triple guitar threat. Yeah, yeah. How about four guitars, five guitars? <laughs> My brother one time told me he saw Meatloaf way back when I don't know, maybe it was at the Capitol Theater. Look, six guitar players were on. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was that the usual band, or was that just some special? I, I don't know, man. But it was wow. well, obviously, because of, you know, the, I, maybe it's the Jim Steinman thing. It was just over the top to achieve yeah. 
you needed well, six guitar players. Or nothing. You know something? If you, if you go back to 1978, I came out as a young as a young boy with my first serious girlfriend. That some of those songs were kind of like cute in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From a teenage perspective, because that was the album was kind of themed like that. You know, and we know we're talking. But um, you took the words right out of my mouth in Paradise by the Dashboard Light. You know? Well, you guys I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, Lou. Uh, eat a peach. Well, eat a peach. You want to toss in there? Yeah, eat a peach. Eat a peach had my favorite almond song is Blue Sky. Love that song. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah. Perry, there's. Who? Tom Allen? No. Tom Dowd? You got me. I've got... Hey, hello. I, I got to... Hello? Can hear you. I can't hear you. Can you hear me, Lou? Can you hear me knocking? <laughs> do you know who produced Eat a Peach? I do not. Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd, yes. Hmm. That was actually just said that. Yeah. If Tom Dowd and God, Tom Dowd would be better. <laughs> Agreed. God, God didn't work on the Manhattan Project, did he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a 50 year old album I want to throw in there. Do it. There's so many albums. We we got. There's a lot of albums tonight. Well, here. We'll have to do more parts in this. You know, we can yeah. we can stay on the subject. Yeah. all day. Um, Carol King Tapestry. Mm. Yep. Released in 1972, and it, I think I, I failed to mention one time that it was on Ode Records. I don't know if it was pronounced Ode or Odie. I think it was distributed by A&M, but it was Ode Records, in which, of course, Ode Records was started by, um, who was the producer, Lou? Out of Tapestry? Yeah. Uh, was that Lou Adler or no? Lou Adler. Lou Adler started Ode Records, yeah. And Carol King was signed to Ode Records, Lou Adler's label, distributed by a larger company, of course. But what a record. That's one of those records where you can just play it through. Let it go. Yes. No skipping involved. It's just a great record. The band is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, Was that Leland Sklar? Leland Sklar. Russ Kunkel. Oh, man. Really? And now, did both Wadi Wachel and Danny Korchmar, a.k.a. Cooch, both play in that, or did neither? Uh, You know, I I think that uh, on I Feel the Earth Move Under My Feet, I think that's Cooch on guitar. Okay. Yeah. yeah it, it's a real a real spare band there. It's just a rhythm section and a guitar and a vocal, and it's just amazing. And, 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 yeah, and she did a lot of the background vocals herself as well. Wow, okay. Mm. She was a bit of a studio whiz herself. Sure. I mean, to talk about seasoned, you know, I mean, just, you yeah. know to, total, total, total pro. pro. I mean, she was a teenage successful songwriter. Yeah, it only got better as she got older in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, great point here. What have you got? Did, did you have more on that, Perry? I'm finished. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, the band called Budgie. 
I've been reading about this band, Budgie. Van Halen were apparently big fans. I don't not um, Mark might know. There might have been some kind of a metal hard rock semi prog. They're out. Yeah. It did not chart. I don't think anyone <laughs> knows about it. But they were influential to a lot of bands. Like, like I mean, Van Halen apparently covered a lot of Budgie songs, they said. So I, I just thought, although that's not significant in the bigger picture, I just thought that was something um, a total dork <laughs> might know. <laughs> I'm a total dork, Loop. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> no, but Mark, you have, right. you have a Budgie record if you do. And this is no, you know, I just I discovered them. Same way, like I just heard about him, and I, but I like him, and I, I had it on my list. I knew about that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> That's an oddball pick. <laughs> Mark, have you got a 50 year old album you want to throw yeah. in there? Yeah. Listen, we're going to have to continue this because I could go for two hours on this, but I'm looking at my two favorite prog bands, and I'm going to have to go with my absolute favorite. So, trilogy from emerson lake and palmer came out in 72 yeah. aside from having probably the best picture on the inside of a gate-filled sleeve which is the band over and over in a forest it had great songs it had from the beginning it had hoedown it had mm -hmm. uh, original sin joke and that's probably their worst song um great album and it was the last of the albums produced by eddie offered who was producing Yes at the same time. So it had Carl Palmer. Past, yeah. Yep. yep. So Carl Palmer had a very good drum sound on it. He had a really good drum sound, meaty, thick. After that, his drum sound kind of went to the background, you know. But uh, one of my favorite, yeah, great album. Just excellent album. And it's ELP. One of my favorite ELP is that one you were talking from the beginning. Yep. I always like that song. Oh, it's a great tune, and that's yeah. that's on that album. And um, by the way, uh, have you ever seen Tom Spallone's video on YouTube? He covered it, and he did a great tribute to, uh, no, to no, Great no. Lake. Go check it out. Yeah. What, what did he cover? Hey, Tom Spallone? Yep, he covered From the Beginning, Lou. Okay. And he did it right after Greg Lake died. And um, he recreated that. In, you, you, I don't know if you guys ever saw the inside of the sleeve of the album, but it's them in the forest. And uh, he did... Tom did a great job. I just shout out to him. It was really good. It was it was Greg Lake died. It was sad for all of us. That was that was a tough one to handle, you know. But great Especially album. after they sent him the health farm to join Asia. <laughs> <laughs> Let it Mark, go. Mark, uh, yeah. He, he, Greg Lake produced trilogy, did he, right? No, Eddie Offord did. That's what he, where I looked at it said he produced it, which I thought was odd. Now, uh, well, you know what? You're right. Eddie Offord might have been the engineer. I'm sorry. Greg Lake really took over the sound of ELP albums with brain cell surgery. And as, as good as brain cell surgery is, it's a defining album. It's, it's a freaking awesome album. Sometimes the production, like for some reason, Carl Palmer got a very thin drum sound and huh. it continued through works. It continued through all the rest of VLP's albums, and I don't understand that. Eddie Offord had a very meaty sound of production. Tarkas had a very warm sound. So I wish they had stuck with Eddie Offord, but he was told evidently to pick a band, Yes or ELP. They didn't want him working for both, so he chose Yes. He stayed with them. Okay. So, yeah. I, I would choose Yes, I think, if that was me. Nothing anti ELP at all, but, um, but I, I do know some of their songs – the drums don't have a great sound. Now you think about it. 
I think about. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they sound kind of, um, you know, the, the, the Tom Toms themselves have a very, I almost had early who, they, uh, John, I think John also called them some like biscuit tins, you know, they sounded like thin and metallic, yes. they didn't sound rich and warm, so yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you, you had to play the bass drum pedal with your winkle picker shoes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Wank, wank <laughs> now, I've got Mark, one more 50-year-old record. I've got many more. I just want to throw one in. All right. Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Yes. Crap. 1972. <laughs> Love it. Love it. That is a great, that is a great record. Yeah. yeah. That's one of my fave Stone records. Yeah. Main Street. And, and I've heard the stories. You've heard the stories about how they used to show, turn up in the basement. And sometimes, uh, you know, Mick would be off in Paris and Keith would come down. And, and sometimes uh, Jimmy Dickinson, I believe, would play drums on a couple of the songs. Correct. Mr. Mr. Jimmy, he played on Always Get What You Want. Um, yeah. I forgot what else he played on. But uh, the drums in that song are great, by the way. They're, they're and, great. and I'm happy. Is that Jim Dickinson playing drums? I don't know. It doesn't sound like Charlie Watts thinking about it. It doesn't sound like him at all. Yeah. Well, but but the interesting thing is, you know, so a lot of it, you know, of course, and then they went to L.A. and then they went to Olympic Studios and stuff to, you know, to fix it all up. But the basic tracks were recorded right down there in that basement in that uh, chalet or what was it in, in France? The, uh... It was basically a moldy basement in a in a damp house. It sounded like hell, you know. I mean, it really sounded bad, but it worked. It, they they're big pink. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Okay. So I, I got. Go with the rise and stardust. Nineteen seventy-two. Yeah. Absolutely. What 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 sounds like you saw this like Rebel Rebel and things like that? No, Rebel Rebel was later. That was uh, Suffragette City with Ziggy Stardust and Five Years and um, lots of stuff, lots of stuff. Yeah, that was a that was a defining that was that was Bowie's defining album for his career. Yeah. Lou's yeah. back. I'm hey, back. Lou. Wait, I, Lou, I have to tell I, you. Hurry, hang, hang on, hang on. Before yeah. I get cut off again, uh, Starman should have been covered by Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Starman. Oh, so I hate that. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I, I've, I've, I've got a lot of Bowie stuff. He's a genius, a world of respect. That's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Lou, I wanted to tell you that I know you're uh, you're you have a thing about this guy Donnie Iris, right? I mean, like a thing. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you're interested in his career and what you know the bands that he was in and things like well, that. I, I just find it I just find it was amazing to me that that song Alia, where he was like this almost like a new new nouveau buddy Holly wrote. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and. There's a documentary about Donnie Iris. It's called King Cool. Wow. So perhaps you can find it somewhere. 
I want to see that, and I do want to see the Gene Clark, um, the Lost Bird, or whatever it's called, the uh, one of his things. But uh, I would definitely check that out. You know, it's like that's that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast because you know you find out things about people, you know, tentacles that reach out. Oh, and you yeah. find out. Oh yeah. You know, people survive. So, Mark, um, yeah, what was what was the first record you ever remember buying with your own money? With my own money. So now. I got kind of a unique thing. It's like my formative years, my sisters, I had three older sisters, Allison, Stacy, and Sue. And so they gave me a lot of the albums that I talk about. As as well, I had a lot of hand-me-downs, all the records that we had when I was a kid, all the 45s. I never paid for any of them. They were all hand-me-downs. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it was kind of like if you watch Almost Famous, I felt like that kid when his sister would give him albums before she left home. That was me. But um, the first album I bought, I walked with my newspaper delivery. I delivered the Community Life, which was a local paper. Yeah. And I went to, yeah, and I went to town and country and I had money and I intended to buy an Emerson, Lake and Palmer album, but I see this album called Asia and it was a Roger <laughs> Dean album cover. And it said members of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And yes, my six ninety nine went to that, and I brought it home. I loved it. And here's the geek in me. I still like it. I love that album. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait. Hey, guys, I, I guess I came in on the, was the first record you ever bought? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Mark, yours was Asia. Yeah. I, I'm sorry for trashing them. <laughs> it's okay. Asia are fun to trash. You can well, trash them. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't their first album called Take a Dump? well lou do you know who actually because steve howe wasn't too he was kind of ill so they had to get joe bonamassa to play the guitar solos on (laughs) yeah i kind of doubt that yeah (laughs) billy eilish was at that time joe Joe bonamassa was a 12 year old uh you know uh virtuoso (laughs) but he probably owned 50 guitars when he was 12 (laughs) actually Actually, it was two back then, and he was playing guitar at two years old, and he only had 25 guitars. So there you go, Perry. Yeah, you <laughs> have to do you remember somewhere. what the first record you was that you paid for with your own money, be it a 45 or an album or a cassette or anything? No, I, I believe I've been trying to do something. So is You hey, Perry, what? what about you? I'll tell you what mine, I absolutely know what mine was. It was I. It was uh, George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. Wow. It was 45. It yeah. cost 89 cents. And I bought it from two guys from Harrison. It was two guys. Born, uh, and uh, Garfield was called Two Guys. <laughs> and it was uh, Apple Records, of course. Yep. Yep. And uh, My Sweet Lord. You still got it? Two guys from I don't have any records anymore. I gave them all away. I just left them at people's houses. I gave some to you. I gave some to uh, Lou. Lou's so one of us has guys. it. <laughs> I I sold them for a hundred thousand dollars too. By the way, you're kidding me. Yeah. Well, good for you, Lou. You're in a new tax bracket now. <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah. Perry, he he sold it to Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> oh God. So yeah, we left off with American Pie, and now we're uh, we, uh, we transitioned to Perry. Yours was um, 
All Things Must Pass? No, mine was My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, the 45. Oh, the 45. Okay. It was 89 cents at two guys. Yeah. Now, yeah. It, it, when, when was the 50th anniversary of All Things Must Pass? 71. Uh, I, that that might year. have been like 1970, even. Okay. Anywho. Anywho, I got to tell you guys. Uh, a couple of days ago, I saw Billy Eilish on Austin City Limits. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and I saw the whole show. show. I, I, I really did the research like, you know, you guys have been telling me. And I gave it a chance. I really did. And I don't know. She does this thing. It's like whisper singing. Uh, yeah. Right? You know what I mean? So like whisper sings but i will tell you the interesting thing i thought was kind of cute is that all the people in the front all of them were 12 year old girls 12 year old girls and their parents were sitting in the back you know watching their 12 you know of course they drove their 12 year old girls to the billy eilish show and um and i and i know that she writes these songs with her brother and her brother is like, uh, I guess he's the keyboard player. He's a bass player. He's an acoustic guitar player. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He does this. And every now and again, and everyone, the whole band is elevated. And she's down at the stage level. And the band is elevated. And every now and again, her brother will come down the steps with his, you know, slim fit jeans and his high top sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, man. I just, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too old for Billy Eilish. I don't know. But, you know, and I know, Lou, Lou, you had recently told me that Dave Grohl had claimed that Billy Eilish created a movement or something. Well, well, she, had, she has her own sound, which is being copied. She's very original. Um, I, she's she, a German artist. I think. And she started. She was a teenager doing this stuff with her brother before they were successful or anything like that. So yeah, she's in part of the machine, but she's she's uh, she's unique, and I, I think she's very genuine. Um, but like you said, you, you're not a 12 year old girl either. You know, maybe on the inside you are, but you know that's that's something you'll eventually come around to. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not making fun of the fact that we're 12 year girls, but I'm sure, like you know, the yeah. movement, Dave Grohl. Probably has a twelve-year-old daughter who loves Billie Eilish. Absolutely, you know, so I can understand that. You know, right. his reaction was the same thing. Like when I heard, I'm like, you know, what is it? My America first is this, and Mark went, duh. Every song she does this thing, and it goes like she goes. And it was interesting because you know the like. Billie Eilish points at the crowd. The point, the crowd points at her. She raises her arm in the air. The, the crowd raises their arm. The twelve-year-old girls raise their arm. They're like, you know, they love her. It's great. It, you know, it's yeah. They love Billie Eilish. It's a great thing. The parents are in the back, and there were even some guys singing along, like a song sure. with Billie Eilish songs. You know, like you know, okay, great for her and great for them. I mean, you know, you know, she's twenty years old, so you know, a bunch of twelve-year-olds. Loving a twenty-year-old, yeah, man. Yeah. What's so shocking about that, right? She's also um, interviews recently. Um, you know about being exposed to 
um, adult material as a very young child, you know, and how it, so it kind of played with her a bit, you know, not to talk about her in that way too much. How she, you know, it's something a young person to think about, you know. Um, yeah, so, I yeah. heard that too. Yeah, you know, it's, it's disturbing. I find it interesting you say that because she is she's twenty years old, but she's not. She's not wearing evocative clothes or anything like that. She's just a twenty-year-old. Yeah, you know what well, I mean. There's, it's not a sex thing or anything like that with Billie Eilish, right? No, and exactly. You know, yeah. She, she. What, what I do appreciate about her is she, she took. There was a, a, a direction of music that was really dark. I mean, extremely dark. And she took it and she made it a little less dark and made it a little more popular. And she connected with kids that may not have connected with that really dark music. And, uh, you know, that's not such a bad thing. And she, the fact that she has a connection with her, with her fans that way, I like seeing any performer, even if it's Taylor Swift, her fans love her. There's a connection. There's nothing wrong with that. That's cool too. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. Listen, when David Bowie was doing Ziggy, there were people that were stuck in this early 60s or the Frankie Valley people going, who is this David Bowie? What the fuck is he doing? It's all generational, you know? He's got no off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, guys, I think she should actually a guest one Keeps cutting me you out. think we can get her? <laughs> Call her brother. Yeah. Oh, when we were talking the other night, you mentioned Austin. You mentioned Austin City Limits, and I said I had a little trivia about Austin. Oh, City you did? Limits. Yeah. So what is it? Okay. Do you know who the first guest was supposed to be? The first guest on Austin City Limits pilot episode, but was and had to be scrapped for Willie Nelson. Um, because of bad audio quality. I have no clue. Inform me. The artist's name was B.W. Stevenson. He had the song My Maria. Oh, I remember that song. Yeah. My, My Maria. Maria. Yeah. Um, really? But, but, yeah, but the sound quality was so bad that they used Willie Nelson. But um, do you know what the B.W. stood for? No. Buckwheat. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I'm saying I'm thinking I'm thinking Eddie Murphy is Buckwheat singing My Maria now. <laughs> um, uh, My Maria was a number one Billboard Hot 100 single. He died at the age of 38 following heart valve surgery. He got a staph infection, so he he passed away in 1988. But um, the modern the modern Brooks and Dunn. Uh, had a number one hit with that, uh, with with the cover of My Maria. So it charted bigger than B.W. Stevenson's. But B.W. Stevenson recorded the original version of Shambhala, covered by Three Dog Night, who made it a hit. Wow, what a tidbit, really. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to um, look that up. I'm going to hear that. When the, writer, uh, the guy that wrote Shambhala, I think we, we would recognize. It wasn't one of the known songwriters that worked with Three Dog Night, but uh, I'm sure there are other songs that he wrote. But yeah, a little Austin City Limits uh, tidbit. Cool, very cool. Let me ask you a question, Lou, Mark. Yeah. Who was the first band, like, mm-hmm. when you were a kid, listened to the radio, who was the first band you or the first band or singer you gravitated towards? Alice Cooper. Really? 
<laughs> with, with, with recognition, the Beatles are too universal. That's just ingrained in our DNA, children. You know, I, I, and being at the age we were, that's just, you know, it was inevitable. It's just something that almost doesn't count because of their universality. Yeah. But the first, first time I heard something where it was outside of the, the Beatles who like, knew the Stones, things that were outside of what my older siblings, you know, I'm one of the youngest of a big family. Right. So I heard a lot of that stuff. But it was something where I said, this was almost kind of mine. Um, you know, and my, I, have, I have an old one, old, one of my older brothers is uh, only three years older. So he had, so we got into it together, you know, yeah, we're back closer in age. Um, whereas the older siblings were three years old and more than that, were like, you know, because of the, the makeup and stuff and like, we don't kiss rolls around, you know? But, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, my father was absolutely horrified. So cool. Team, Alice right? Cooper was your was was your uh, your band. Yeah, and the reason, but what I liked about it was I thought the songs were cool. Even some of the darker stuff, I was like, I, I'm like, I can see why my dad's a little concerned. You know, songs called "Dead Babies." I love Kill. the dead. Yes. You know, I love the dead. Rise, <laughs> <laughs> no farewells, no goodbyes. <laughs> Rotting face. You know, yeah. um, but. I remember I, I like Neil Smith as a drummer, and apparently he said that I, I someone wondered how many drums he used, but he used mirrors. Apparently, I read to like Make hit like more. And when Max Weinberg of Bruce Springsteen fame played at my brother's wedding, he's asking me who my favorite drummers were, and I mentioned Neil Smith, and he goes, "Too many drums." <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, Max plays the traditional four-piece kit, but now I also it, have to find out about that because. I've read somewhere that Bob Ezrin is the guy that actually came up with that drum beat for Billion Dollar Babies. Wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if it's true, but hopefully we can find out. Maybe we can talk to Bob Ezrin one day. That would be just great. That would be wonderful. Well, the thing was, you know, as a accomplished drummer, Neil Smith, it's amazing. Um, The producer has been playing something would have you know that's a producer that's what they that's how they know music intrinsically and so bob Benson must get work you know? and of course it did you know it, it's yeah. true that's an extremely rock and roll thing to do in the beginning with song you know hell yeah mark have you got a record uh that was the first band or something you gravitated towards perry i'm a freaking freak all right so i'm in third grade as i was I'm in th- third grade as Zion Lutheran. It's 77. Star Wars came out. My sister took me to Paramus to see Star Wars. So I'm totally a science fiction geek and brain salad surgery. That was my album. I was, I actually brought it with me to school at Zion Lutheran. Okay. Hey, Mark, <laughs> didn't Mark, go over I, too well. Can we stress, since our listeners don't know us, Zion Lutheran was a school that both suffered years of abuse in, right? Right, exactly. Okay. I had a science teacher that was very tough on me. <laughs> well, could I add a side note to that? A side random relish. Yeah. I used to work at that school, very same school. Yep. And I noticed down in, in one of the rooms down there in the basement, there was a, a mural on the wall of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And Mark, I understand that you and a friend of yours and at the school painted that mural. I think I know who my friend is. It's wow. all very hazy. 
I was not drinking alcohol at that time, so we can't say that. But um, yeah, we um, this school was a lot more permissible back then. Uh, actually, I had a music teacher who, and you know who she is, Perry, who actually appreciated Keith Emerson because he brought a lot of classical themes into his music. But when I was in third grade, it was science fiction. So when you listen to progressive music, you got all those keyboards, you're like, this is great. You know, keyboards equal lasers, you know, <laughs> um, that was my thing. Now, I had to be brought into pop music later on. Like I started, I got my AM radio. So I started listening to Casey Kasem and then, oh shit, this is good stuff. You know, but initially I was, my sister had, my oldest sister had to pull me out of just listening to ELP and yes, she's like, Mark, Mark, Mark. She bought me some other albums and she pulled me out, <laughs> but yeah. Brain Cell Surgery was my very first album that awakened me. The label had a little skull on it, just like the cover of the album. So I'd sit there <laughs> looking at the skull going around and around and around. <laughs> it was great. Yep. Hey, hey, uh, guys, I, I have a little um, Zion Lutheran music uh, relish uh, flashback real quick. Uh, Perry, when Reverend Brinkman died and he had his body laid out, you called me up and said, Let's take pictures and put like cigarettes in his mouth. Do devil points in his ears. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, come on. Yes, you did. I was ready to do it. The desecration, man. I don't know. <laughs> Does anyone want to know what my first uh, band was? Uh, yes. Absolutely. For? Yeah. When I was a young kid. It was Credence Clearwater Revival. Mm, I loved right. everything that they did. It was just, it just grabbed me. John Fogarty's voice and the songwriting and the, and, the and, and I loved the drumming. And by the way, I love, I love Doug Clifford on drums and I love Stu Cook's bass playing. I absolutely sure. love it. I think it's great. Everything was perfect about, I, I, I mean, you know, I had, I had I had all the records. I had the first cassette that I had was Bayou Country. Creedence Bayou Country. It was one of those when I was twelve years old. I had the cassette, you know, and I, you know, I had some, you know, my aunt, my mother's sister would buy me a cassette for my birthday or whatever, and you know, and it was. They gave me Roberta Flack one time, and I couldn't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Roberta Flack? You know, and like. Okay, you know, thanks, Aunt Patty. You know, <laughs> you know, but but I I ended up I ended up with Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, and things like that. But Credence, man, Credence, Clearwater Revival, I absolutely loved. And I had, um, in fact, I had the cassette of uh, of of the the, the record, the Credence Clearwater uh, record that had Bad Moon Rising in it, right? And it had a defect in the cassette. So everything goes, I see the bad moon rising. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you, as someone who was in cassette production, I know how that happened. And we did plenty of albums like that. We, we... That's funny. <laughs> and it was, it was great, but I, had, I, I absolutely adored it, man. You know, like, and to this day, I love Creed's Color Revival. You know, <laughs> and you know something? It's, it, it's not easy to either top or rival or come close to Marvin Gaye, but their version of Heard of the Grapevine is good. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a yep. totally different, totally different, completely reworked, but I mean, I mean, amazing, you know. 
and yeah. it's in its own brilliant way, you know. Yeah, great jam. So get, so get this, guys. Guess who has a new album out? Tears Joe Bonamassa. Tears for Fears has <laughs> an album out. I'm loving this. Tears for Fears has a new album out. Yes, they do. Yes, I, I have it. You have it already. I I ordered the Steve Wilson five point one surround sound mix because that's I like that and. Have you heard it, Perry? Uh, not yet, but I, I cannot wait to hear it. I and love it. It's, it's the, they're a band I absolutely always liked. Yeah, yeah. It's very good. Very good album. And I've very always good. told Lou that uh, Head Over Heels would have been a great comeback song for Donny Osmond. <laughs> that would. <Sure. laughs> he, did a, he did a Peter Gabriel <laughs> Yeah, so it's a very, very good album. Perry, you will like it. Might take a couple listens because it's deep stuff, but uh, I put it on and I was just like, it's very, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's uh, yeah. not that happy. I, I recently no. saw them interviewed and they haven't spoken. They didn't speak for seven years. And, you That's know, a- he made a record, the other guy made a record and whatever, but they're back with a new record. And uh, I bet it's as strong as ever. And, and you know, is this, it's is funny. This one, yeah. Go ahead, Lou. Sorry. Is this one called Songs from the Rocking Chair? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's actually called... Come on, man. <laughs> it's close. It's called The Tipping Point. That's when yeah. you tip off of the wheelchair, <laughs> you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we got a few more, like Mark wanted to talk about some rock and roll books or some books that, you know, music oriented, but I've got one little thing I want to do. And Lou, do not worry. I'm only going to play the intro and I want you to see if you can guess what song this is. It's a one hit wonder. Okay. All right. I'm going to play the intro right now. And I, believe me, there wouldn't be nothing else but the intro. Okay. So do not worry about ASCAP and BMI. Ready? Well, here, here she goes. Hang on. What is it? What is it, Lou? What? <laughs> it was. Well, Lou, what I was, give up. It what was, was um, uh, Sue Me, Sue You Blues. No, no, no. Mark, you know what it is? Brewers, Shipley, oh, my Toke God. I do. Lou, you've I, got it. Lou, you've got it. It was Brewer Shipley, one toke over the line. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I just want to tell you, I'm not going to play any more of it, but this will come as no surprise to you. Jerry Garcia played pedal steel guitar on it. Ah. Really? Yes. And he also played, um, uh, what is the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song? Um, Teach Your children. children. Yeah. He's, he's now, if you want, well. I'll play you the pedal steel in middle part if you want. You just can't help yourself, can you? <laughs> no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But 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 ask that's cap, a ask cap, the ASCAP police. 
<laughs> it's Bruin Shipley, one toke over the line, but Jerry Garcia. And in the past, Bruin Shipley has used the Wrecking Crew to play on the records. I mean, the, the Wrecking Crew really? could actually be on this song that I don't know. They've used wow. Hal Blaine. They've used Jim Gordon. They've Larry Nectol. They've used guys like that. But Jerry Garcia is the pedal steel guitar player on this song. And there's this old pedal steel middle part. It's very simple, very short, very concise, but it, it makes the song too. Yeah. So one toke over the line, Brewer and Shipley, kind of their only really big charting song. And uh, Jerry Garcia played pedal steel guitar on it. Thank you very, thank you very much. <laughs> hey, Lou. Doesn't it get scary at this point in the show when you know Perry's had a few beers? I've had a couple Tito's in club. Like, who's going to play the whole song? It's going to happen. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do what I did last week. That was a little bit. <laughs> I, actually, I, I, thre- I threatened to sue him over the Music Rose podcast name last week. <laughs> I, I work I for one of my employers is a former um, um, Washington, D.C. lawyer, Perry. So I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, I got power. <laughs> so can I throw something in there about, uh, I don't know how you feel about this, guys, but this this band kind of bugs me. And it's just, uh, I got to get it off my chest. There you go. Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> I, I find the melodies and stuff too jagged. I just can't. It, it Nothing is smooth with them to me. That's just me. Yeah. Like, you know, I know, the, I know the younger people, the the whatever generation they are, they dig the Dave Matthews band. But uh, I'll give them one thing: they're edgier than um, Fish. <laughs> but <laughs> and he can actually write a pop song. And his 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 turn as Otis in um, Win Dixie was freak fucking fabulous. He was great in that movie. But I know what you mean, Perry. It's like he's another one where. He jams, but it's not like the Allman Brothers or the Grateful Dead. He'll jam, and it's like one chord going over and over again. And uh, it can be tough, you know? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think I think I agree. I think Lou had a point. The drummer sometimes wants to be Neil Peart, like he overplays. And that's fine if you're in like a fusion band and, uh, you know, but they're all like that. The bass player, too. He overplays and, and they all try to be virtuosos. That's fine. And they're great musicians. But it can be like, all right, are you playing a pop country infused song or are you playing a fusion song? So I can see where it annoys you, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. And his voice. His voice gets on people's nerves. But Otis, in Because of Winn-Dixie, he was perfect for that role. I cannot get enough of that role. That made me not hate him. When I saw that movie, I'm like, I like Dave Matthews. <laughs> really? Dave yeah. Matthews? Okay. Yeah. But I agree. You know, I, I understand why you say that. Because it's, it's like I've been, I know Dave Matthews fans that are bigger fans and Grateful Dead fans. And they try to get me, you know, they've convinced me, you know, he's, he's worth listening to. Don't hate him, but yeah, it's rough. <laughs> so can I throw one other thing in there, guys, Lou, Mark, 
we were talking sure. about we were talking about some records that were 50 years old, right? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about one record that was it's 40 years old. And it's I don't have many, I don't know how you guys, I don't have many absolute favorite, favorite, favorite records, but I do have a favorite record from 40 years ago, and it's by XTC and it's called English Settlement. Wow. This is one record that like, you know, I don't, you know, there's people who say Desert Island Disc. If you could take one record with you, XTC English Settlement to me is a masterpiece Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by Hugh Padgham. But I want to say one thing. They recorded the album at the Manor Studio. It's this lush estate in Oxfordshire. In Oxfordshire, right? And Mm -hmm. it's called the Manor Studio. So, you know, they were in this lush, lush thing. But here's a little interesting thing. The Manor Studio and its outbuildings are listed as Grade 2 National Heritage List of England. Guess who owned... Guess who owned the property? Who? Richard Branson. Hmm. And they were on Virgin Records, of course. Yeah. So therein lies the thing. But the manor where um, where XCC recorded English cinema at this lush estate was the third estate recording studio. The first actual estate recording studio ever built was Ascot Sound Studios by John Lennon built at his house in Tittenhurst Park Mm -hmm. and we've we've all seen films about him recording there right he recorded his Imagine album there yep and there was another there was another one called Rockfields um Put together by some French musicians. Down in Wales. They recorded and, some great albums there. But the manor was um the manor was where XTC recorded English settlement. So John Lennon had the first estate manor recording studio, Ascot Sound Studios, and like that is just wonderful. At this the, the studio that was owned by Richard Branson for Virgin Records. The first record that was ever recorded there was the Bonzo Dog Band. And I think Eric uh, Eric uh, from uh, Monty Python. Maybe. Yeah, that, that, that was Neil Innes. Um, Neil, Neil Innes. Innes. Yeah. From, um, from, <laughs> yeah. From the Ruddles. From the Ruddles, yep. But the most famous record that was ever recorded there at the Manor, where XCC recorded English Settlement, was tubular bells by Mike Oldfield? Wow. wow, yeah, totally tubular, totally tubular, <laughs> and it's like you know, it's like they had a sixteen-track studio and all this stuff. Like, wow, man! But but XTC English Settlement is one of those records. Like, yeah, I would if I no. would take that record with me anywhere, anywhere. No. The drummer, I believe, if or maybe they used the, several drummers, but I think. The one I know that played on that, I believe, is Prairie Prince. And do we know what American band he was the drummer for? Utopia. At one point, maybe, but I'm thinking of another band that might be more 
bigger on his resume? Oh, you got me stumped. The tubes. Oh, oh, totally tubular. Mike Oldfield no. tubular bells. <laughs> the, to- the totally tubular tubes. <laughs> I didn't know he played White for the tubes. Yeah. White dopes on pump. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I will say that uh, XTC were known, you know, they're, uh, they, they played a lot of fretless bass. On uh, XTC, a lot of fretless, huh. like really interesting. You, you know, Perry, that song they played some fretless, a lot of fretless bass on it. it. They have a song called "The Garden of Earthly Delights," I believe. On our and he does, he does a Phrygian scale on the on the fretless bass, and I always said, "You're doing a Phrygian scale on a fretless bass." That that's what I love about XTC. Hmm. Great band. And yeah, that's but, great, that, but that record in particular, English Settlement, is a that's one of those records where you just put it on and let it go, and every yeah. song is great and every song is interesting. Yep. Yeah. Now, Mark, you mentioned and, song. And, the song you mentioned, Mark, yeah. is on Oranges and Lemons. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, which is a great record. That's like '88. Um, the drummer in that was Pat Mastalotor. He was the drummer for Mister Mister. And, he and when people heard that he was going to be on that record, they're like, the drummer from Mr. Mr., but it's a great record. He's a great drummer. I mean, well, do you know who he's with now? Uh, I, I did read it somewhere, but you have to remind me. King Crimson. And I saw them four yes. times with him. He's one of three drummers. And it, even when he played with XTC, it's like when you see him with King Crimson, it's like a whole nother level. You're like, holy shit. Sure, sure. <laughs> he is amazing. He's a great drummer. Look it up. If you look it up, there's a, there's a, there's a video out there of Dave Gregory, who was the guitar player in XDC, and Hugh Padgham, both being interviewed about English Settlement, which is a classic, classic record. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is... It is I mean, I love XCC. I love everything they do, but this is a masterpiece. This could be their Sergeant Pepper, or however you want to compare it. Anything yeah, like that. the people might consider that their apex, penultimate album, maybe. Or, no. um, maybe you know, senses working yeah. time yeah. and uh, yeah. no thugs in our house. Jason and the Argonauts. Oh mm. man, it's just it, every. Every song on that record is just fabulous. Ball and Chain, Save Us from the Ball, ball and, and chain. chain. Yep. Now, Hugh Padgham, he also, he, the 80s, that was, he was like one of the producers of the 80s because he produced the police. Oh, yeah. Bill he Collins. The police, didn't he? Yeah. But you know, Perry, Hugh Padgham is also responsible for the dreaded Phil Collins drum sound, the gated snare. I've, I've read that. Wait, yeah. I've no, read that. wait, yeah. wait, that. Peter Gabriel. Yes. The Peter Phil, Gabriel album. Yeah. Phil Collins, yeah. Phil Collins played on a song that had that sound and he kind of used it. Yeah. But he worked it out. Didn't Hugh oh, yeah. Padgham produce that album? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe he did, but then, like, so then they took it and they, they perfected it or they made it recognizable, you know, in the air tonight. Yeah. In certain parts of uh, Europe, XTC English Sentiment was released as it's a double record set. In, in the U.S., it was released as a single record. They left off like five tracks in in some in Europe. That sucks. Yeah. Um, but um, 
Hugh Padgham, by the way, also uh, produced two Rush albums, Lou, that some of their best songs, uh, it was uh, Presto oh. and Roll the Bones, but he took all the bass, all the bass out of the band. Geddy Lee's bass was just like a click. And I don't, that was the 80s, I guess, you know, it was like, it wow. was making crackling, but oh my God. But yeah, yeah, he, he, he did a good job with Rush, except for the bass sound. Wow. Now, <laughs> Kind of ridiculed on some questions because Getty Lee raps in there. Is that Getty Lee rapping or is that someone else rapping? But there's a rap in Ro- it's Getty, phone. it's Getty with a uh, with a vocal effect. Yeah, okay, yeah, Jack, relax, gonna kick some gluteus max. Yeah, <laughs> so and, and also, like, yeah. all of a sudden, no thugs in our house. Yeah, it's it's just, I mean, it's just fabulous, of course. The, I think the big hit was Senses Working Overtime. Yeah. 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 One, two, three, four, five. And, and, and it's one of those records where I would just, I would, I just love the record, man. I, I, I just, all right, I, I'm finished. I can't go on it's, anymore about it. But is <laughs> Melt the Guns, is that the, is Melt the Guns, Melt, melt the, the Guns, guns that never learn to fire them, Melt yeah. the Guns, yep. Now, Andy Park, to that of the Barking Seal. <laughs> well, the garden of earthly delight. Senses working over time. Yeah, the great song, Yacht Dance, you know, yeah. knuckle yeah. down. <laughs> all, all of a sudden, it's too late. All of a sudden. Oh, yeah. What a great record, man. Hey, Perry. You know what? I think we could have a music relish bonus. Since you've had a few beers and we've all had a few drinks, let's just play the whole album. What's the worst that could happen? Put it on. <laughs> Lots could happen. I don't, Lots I don't happen. care anymore. Lots <laughs> could happen. Can I, can I say something about that? Remember that song by that group? They had one big hit. They were called Blind Melon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the, with the B-girl. The, the video was with the B-girl dancing around. No rain. Yeah. No rain. I always thought like that song sounded to me like it could have come out in 1972. Mm. Sure. That's what I really loved about that song. It's like, boy, it, it sounded like, it, you know, I don't know what year it was, 82, 92, whatever it was, but it sounded like it could have come out in the, uh, in the era where like everyone was wearing bell bottoms and, yeah, they, they, they were wearing bell bottoms in the early 90s. They, they, <laughs> oh, yeah, they right. came back. Fashion company, it's all cyclical. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, that was kind of like a neo hippie thing going on. I mean, remember, like in the eighties, every you know, it was very fashionable and like Madonna and New Wave and big shoulder pads at sharp angles. And the nineties came, and you know, bands like that, blues traveler, thing they they had a more organic look. Grunge kind of made being dirty good again. You know, yeah, as far yeah. as as far as your band's image or something like that, but. You know, the 80s, you know, the neon colors, the bright colors went away. The and, you know. <laughs> so, Mark, you, you uh, what kind of books are you reading about, like, rock and roll? Like, Well, I'll tell you what. This is a subject. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm reading now, but I could go off for an hour on rock and roll books. My favorite kind of books are musicians, biographies, or autobiographies. I've I learned to like many. Lou and I will agree that we all kind of admire and relish those kind of things. Would you say? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and I've actually become fans of bands because of reading books, because when you read what they're thinking, it's just amazing, you know, but you're going to laugh. Perry's what I'm reading now. And I had, I didn't know he put a autobiography out is I'm reading uh, Phil Collins autobiography. I'm not dead yet. And cool. it's, that, it's great. It's fucking great. It's just, he's, he he does go into the boring musician stuff that you know the fairweather fans would be like what um he's also falls in love too easily which is a problem that most rock artists or artists have you know and, and there's a lot of heartbreak but uh he explains some of you know remember in the 80s uh it was i hate phil collins because he, he admits it in the book he says when you turn on tv you open the newspaper put on the radio i was on there of course you hated me and we all hated him <laughs> We got tired of him after a while. Sure. Overkill, but I, overkill, yeah. Yeah, but I was a Genesis fan. And I always was. And I actually, I was a closet Phil Collins fan. So even through like high school and everyone hated Phil Collins, I liked him. Um, but it's interesting that when he was producing all these bands, the stories in the book, now he doesn't really get involved so much, but he produced a ton of stuff. And he produced Robert Plant's first two albums. Well, he didn't really produce them, but he, had a musical direction and he played drums on most of the albums. So he's good friends with Phil produced um, Frida from ABBA, her first solo album. But yeah. what he explained was he just produced bands or artists that he grew up loving. So he, he was, a he, he, he grew up loving Led Zeppelin. So he wanted to play with Robert Plant, uh, all these bands that he liked, but he, the funniest story or the, I, I don't know if you remember live aid, when Led Zeppelin reformed and it was horrendous. It was horrible. It was horrendous with Phil Collins attempting to play rock and roll or something. Well, here's the deal. So they all blame Phil Collins for ruining it. <clears throat> he has a good side to the story. He goes him and Robert Plant, cause they were good friends and they, he toured with Robert Plant on two tours and Robert said, I'm going to do this live aid thing and I want to do something with Jimmy Page. So Phil said, of course, I'll do it. Why would you say no, you know? So he left, you know, they, whatever. And then Phil got caught up in the whole Live Aid thing where he was playing in England and he was playing a set with Sting. That itself was kind of a disaster. He got hot and sweaty. He had a few clunker notes. I remember seeing that. And then Sting goes off on these tangents with the vocals and he had trouble keeping up with them. But then he jumps on the Concord and, um, what what had happened was Zeppelin or Page and Plant were rehearsing in Philadelphia or in the United States. Phil was in England. He's recording an album at the time, and he's like, I'm here. But he said, I'll just listen to these songs you play, and I'll join in with you. Big mistake, right? <laughs> so he comes over, but it, it was basically, you know, it wasn't Phil. Remember how Jimmy Page was in that. He was, and Phil said in the book, he was literally drooling. I mean, we, he was going through his troubles at the times. So, yeah, he said if he could have walked off stage, he would have. It was um, then he had uh, Tony and I don't remember the guy's name. He was a drummer that was in power station. He was there. They had decided to get him involved. And he thought, oh, if there's going to be a Led Zeppelin reunion, I'm going to be the drummer. So there was territories, you know, like you're not coming in here. So I kind of felt bad for the guy. Like it really was a problem as Robert Plant said, you want to play with us? He should never have said that. But it was a very interesting uh, story, just very interesting, because I, I, it's one of the worst musical <laughs> travesties ever, is that, in fact, Led Zeppelin wouldn't let it be 
put in the Live Aid DVD. They they said, nope, you're not putting it in there. It was that, it was bad. that bad. Yeah, and we don't know the backstory either. Right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm loving the Phil. He's got a lot of stories. He's He is the guy in Genesis that came from a humble. He was like you and I. He came, he didn't come from a middle class background. He didn't come from a posh school like the other two. And but uh, he does get across how close he is with Peter Gabriel, very close to the guy. And they have a spiritual connection. That's not nice to read. You know, I always thought they hated each other. Um, and uh, excellent book. Just really good book. And he, of course, all the romantic stories. He, you yeah. know, leaving one wife for another girl and all that. But <laughs> Well, yeah, in the finances, I, yeah, I have nothing to say about that. But uh, <laughs> I'm reading a book. By it, it by Bill Schnee. It's called Chairman at the Board, the re- recording of the soundtrack of a generation. This guy, Bill Schnee, has been behind the board of so many records, from Billy hmm. Dan to you know nameless people that this guy has recorded with. There's a picture. There's a picture here of him with Al Schmidt, Glenn Johns, and Bill Schnee. So like. These are the kind of guys like it, it, it's 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 a great thing. And I'm also reading a book by Ted Templeman, a platinum Ooh. producer's life in music. Ted Templeman. So I have two books that I'm going on about right now. That, you know, of course, Ted Templeman. You've heard that name so many times. He's worked with so many people. Van Halen. That's how I know him from <laughs> uh, Van Halen and, you know, Ted, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm stuck over here. And uh, wasn't, did he do something with Michael Jackson? And shoot me if I'm wrong. He worked with so many people. It's, uh, you know, I know I, I, I didn't highlight any excerpts in the book, but I've got two books right here. Uh, Chairman at the Board with Bill Schnee and Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. I will definitely check both of them out because Bill Schneed, I never heard of him, but producers, it's a fascinating angle to music. It's not a musician. So a musician is a mess, right? We're all a mess. We we're just trying to do what we do. Whereas the producer is the guy that has to hone that into a vision. So I love reading that stuff. Well, that, so I that, would... think the, the great thing is that like when I, when, when I read a book, right, I don't stockpile these books. I send them over to Lou. Lou sends them over to Sotmitter. I send one to you. I, you know, they, they make the rounds. And people keep reading these books and uh, keep the information flowing. So that's yeah. a great thing to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's things like that. So I have chairman at the board recording the soundtrack of a generation with Bill Schnee. And, I'm writing it down. And Ted Templeman. A platinum producer's life in music, and uh, I'll send you the books when I'm finished with them if you want. And uh, I'll see, yeah. you know, like I've sent books over to Lou, Lou's forwards them to Sop Mitter, and we just, you know, we just keep it moving. You know, Sop sends them to someone else, just you know, no one stockpiles these books, just the information just keeps flowing. I have, yeah. a, I have a book on Pete Townsend, I send it to some, I think I send it down to Lou and or or to Sop or. You know, I uh, the uh, I had a book on America. Just mm. sit down, let's keep this keep this information moving, and the, you know, this is a great thing. Yeah, so yeah. We need to have a library of these yep. books. I'm just going to forward them to someone else who's going to. You know them. what? I I, I got to say here, um, 
shout out to Sat because I only met him once and he was one of the most generous, beautiful human beings I ever met. I got to catch up with him someday. He's a great guy. Yeah. I've actually, uh, a few times he's actually played on a couple of uh, recordings I did over at Lou's when he had a uh, single wide sound. And, uh, you know, so he's a guitar player. He's a bass player. He's a singer. He's many, many things. And, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's funny, you can, you know, the, the first five minutes you meet him and you're like, yeah, I, I, I know this guy. I know this guy. He's you yeah. know, like, I felt like I've known him a long time. So that's a, that's a rare thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a, I agree with you totally. And Perry Sot, and you know, cause you were there, we were playing the CD in the car on the way back from Luz. Yeah. Sot, Drove me down, got me into that long journey of Porcupine Tree, Steve Wilson. If it wasn't for Sot, I wouldn't have discovered in my second half of my life, my ELP, my Led Zeppelin is Porcupine Tree and Steve Wilson. So they can never, you know, thank them enough for that. So, yeah. And you, and you I drive people crazy talking about Steve Wilson. So I'll shut up. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'll say good night, Lou. Good night, Mark. I'm just going to storm a couple of notes and then we'll yeah. see you guys around maybe next week. Okay. Sounds good. I'll be here. All right. Have a good night, Mark. Have a good night, Perry. Ooh, good talking. See you. you next week. Good night. Good night.